Hi, I'm Simon Whistler. Welcome to another episode of the Visual Politic Podcast. In this one, the Euro Origin Crisis and Future Challenges. It was originally released on our YouTube channel on the 22nd of May 2019. As always, guys, I'm just going to jump in where necessary and explain any visual elements that were in the video version. As this is a podcast version, you can't see charts and graphs and things like that. So I'll explain them as necessary by jumping in. And yeah, please leave us a review. If you like this show, do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, really just that would be cool of you. And let's get into it. Hi, followers of VisualPolitik. My name is Gabriel Glöckler. I'm a principal advisor in the communications department of the European Central Bank. Hi, my name is uh, Imran Islam and I am a cyber specialist at the European Central Bank working in market infrastructure and payments. My name is Dirk Bullmann. Uh, I'm the innovation team lead in the market infrastructure and payments department here at the European Central Bank. With an initial exchange rate of $1.1789, the euro was born on the 1st of January 1999. It began to operate as an electronic currency used in financial markets and for cashless payments. be until three years later, that is at the beginning of 2002, when the euro coins and notes that we know today began to circulate. It had all started a decade earlier, on January the 1st, 1991, when 11 member countries of the European Union decided to integrate their local currencies, currencies such as the mark, franc, lira, or peseta, under the supervising umbrella of the European Central Bank. And with that, the euro era began. The euro is just around the corner, and the easiest way to get used to it is step by step. Sense the back. What a mess. Nobody thought Spain was going to be here today actively participating in the founding of the euro, the single European currency. And it did so in style. Expectations were absolutely huge. Perhaps no one showed more confidence in this new currency than the European Commissioner for Monetary Affairs, Yves Thibault. The euro will suppress monetary instability, reduce the cost of companies, and guarantee low and stable interest rates. Today, nobody would imagine the United States with 50 currencies. The dollar has made this country strong. The euro will make Europe's voice heard louder all over the world, which will allow it to better defend its interests, which go far beyond purely monetary ones. Iftivo, European Commissioner for Monetary Affairs. Since then, 20 years have passed, a time in which the new European currency has gone through both good and bad times. Which means, on many occasions, the euro has been a big topic of public debate. Because, folks, we can't deny it, the news is notoriously pessimistic. Catastrophes and bad news draw more attention than positive events. It's easy to believe that the latest news supersedes any slow and steady trend. So in recent years, we've all been hearing all kinds of theories about what the euro has meant and forecasts about the currency's future. Surely you must have heard at some point that the euro is doomed or that its arrival led to winning and losing countries within the eurozone. But, well, what's the truth? What assessment can we make of the 20 years that the euro has been part of most Europeans' daily lives? And what challenges does it face?
Well, thanks to the support and the sponsorship of the European Central Bank, some of VisualPolitik's team members, we traveled to Frankfurt to seek answers to those questions and celebrate the 20th anniversary of the European currency. What is the Central European Bank for? The European Central Bank is therefore to help Europeans to be able to spend their money, to invest it, to borrow money with confidence. We want to make sure that money is stable and that the banks where people put their money in are safe. That was Gabriel Glochler, Principal Advisor for the Directorate General Communications of the European Central Bank. In this video, we're going to try and find out what the euro has meant and what challenges it faces. So let's get into it. Unity is strength. I think the first question we need to ask ourselves is quite clear. How and why did the euro emerge? To answer this question, we need to go back to the 1980s, a decade that wasn't particularly good for Europeans. At that time, Europe's economy was not having a great time. These were years of stagnation and bad statistics. For example, unemployment in the European community's countries had practically doubled, going from 5.8% in 1980 to over 11% just five years later. Potential growth had decreased by three points. Public deficits had begun to emerge with levels above 3%. And to make matters worse, the United States, one of the main destinations for European exports, was heavily increasing its restrictions on imports. Well, it was in this context that the idea of building a true common market emerged. Something that would allow European nations to boost trade and subsequently strengthen their economic growth. The idea was to create a market without barriers, without customs, without tariffs, without restrictions for all goods. To do so, all administrative obstacles would have to be eliminated and the disparity between rules and regulations had to be ended. If a product could be sold in one country of the Union, it could be sold in any of them. But not only that, a genuine common market had to work with the same currency and with the same monetary policy. Among other things, this would prevent countries competing with each other by devaluing their respective currencies over and over again. And that was quite common in those times. For example, between 1979 and 1992 alone, Italy devalued the lira seven times. Yep. That's right, in 13 years they had seven devaluations. How was it decided that a single European currency was needed? The idea was to create a single market that would be as large and as competitive as that of the United States and to help rebuild uh, Europe after the war. Now that went well, things moved, moved, moved ahead, but then you realize that each country having their own currency is in fact a barrier to that deeper integration. And Europeans have been trying all sorts of things to make sure that competitive devaluations, where one country makes a big effort to be uh, competitive and so on, gets undone by a devaluation of another country. And they've tried it through various means, the uh, uh, European monetary system and so on and so forth. And in comes the idea of monetary union, again, a gigantic uh, revolutionary idea, thinking completely outside the box. The Europeans said, let's not fix exchange rates, let's do away with exchange rates altogether. Let's have one currency, a single currency. 
And what's more, setting a common currency would make trade between the European countries a lot easier. Companies that no longer have to look at exchange rates, monetary policy decisions from different governments, or currency risk hedges, among many other issues. You know what? The creation of the single market has been a clear example of success. It simply has fulfilled its objective. Intra-community exports have moved from representing 13% of the European Union's GDP in 1992 to more than 20% today. And the volume of intra-community investments has also skyrocketed. And in all honesty, throughout this entire process, the euro has played a key role. The euro has now been with us for 20 years. So what conclusions can we draw? Well, has it been good or bad for Europeans? So let's take a look. The currency shared by more than 300 million Europeans is now in circulation. 12 countries have started to say goodbye to their national currencies and use only the euro. No, it's the euro. Who? The time of the euro. Folks, Europe has changed a lot in the last 20 years, in some cases for good and in some cases for, well, not so good. But at this point, let me ask you a question. Well, what do you think? Do you think the euro has been good or bad for Europe? Well, folks, with data in hand, I think we can say that in general, its influence has been positive. We've talked about this a lot here previously on Visual Politics, but the question it really has to be, how positive has the change been? What has the euro meant for the lives of European citizens? Money has always been a language to, ex to, to express value. How much do you value something? These days, there's 340 million Europeans who only have one common language to express how much is a thing is worth to them, and that's in euro. Even if we speak different languages, our language of expressing value is the euro. And that kind of brings us together, and, uh, and that's a, a, true, a true benefit. Uh, a further benefit would be if you go abroad. If you go, I don't know, to Bangkok, and you give your rickshaw driver a dollar note, they will say, yes, that's an interesting uh, thing, I will take that. These days, if you go to Bangkok, or you go to, to, to Istanbul, and you hand out a five euro note, people will gladly take that. That's the benefit of having international currency, that wouldn't have happened with the peseta, I would assume, in the old days. We have created a currency that is stable, where inflation is low, and where there's a, an environment of, of stability and certainty. That's a great benefit. Many, many people across many parts of Europe had not experienced that for decades. Now they have it, and it's become the most normal thing of the world. Well, let's put some numbers on the table, shall we? Nowadays, more than 340 million people use the euro, and it has replaced national currencies in 19 of the 28 states that make up the European Union. These are Austria, Belgium, Cyprus, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Ireland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, the Netherlands, Portugal, Slovakia, Slovenia, and Spain. Since its inception, the Eurozone's GDP per capita has increased by 52%, going from about 21,000 euros to more than 32,000 euros today, and the work participation rate is higher in the Eurozone than it is in the United States. 
In spite of that, inflation has reached an average of 1.7%, a rate lower than ones recorded in the 70s, 80s, or even the 90s. In fact, the Eurozone's inflation level in these 20 years has been lower than that of the Federal Republic of Germany over the same period of time. Will we soon see new members in the Eurozone? Well, each country, in a sense, that does not have the Euro has to decide for itself um, when is the right moment to join the Euro. Those who are members of the European Union have signed a treaty that eventually commits them to also join the Eurozone when the conditions are right. And countries have to decide for themselves when the conditions are right, when they think that now the economy is fit enough, it's developed enough, it's, it has the right institutions, it functions well enough. This might explain the Euro's huge popularity. Actually, only 20% of Europeans are against the idea. According to the latest surveys, three out of every four European citizens have a good opinion of the currency and think that it's generally been positive. And let's not kid ourselves. It isn't strange for them to think so. I'm sure that if you were offered to have your savings in Euros or pesetas, or in some currency today that resembles the peseta, you probably wouldn't think twice about it. But hold on a second, because not everything has been sunshines and rainbows. In the last 20 years, the Euro has also faced some very hard times. The Stressful Years between 2008 and 2012, things became very difficult. The global financial crisis caused a list of problems in most Western countries and true nightmares in some of the countries using the euro, such as Greece, Italy, Ireland, Spain, or Portugal. Clearly, that's when the idea of two Europes emerged. On the one hand, where the Central and Northern European countries, countries that generally have high productivity indexes, competitive industries, and relatively responsible leaderships. And on the other hand, we had countries that historically attempted to compete by devaluing their currencies. When this option was ruled out due to the euro, they had boosted domestic demands through strong imbalances in their payments balance. In other words, they financed most of their spending via consumption and investments with funding from abroad, basically from northern and central European countries. And this money was largely concentrated in the real estate sector. We're talking about countries where the local governments didn't implement any structural reforms that would allow them to be more competitive, and whose banks were overloaded with loans linked to the real estate bubble. Loans that of course lost a lot of their value when this bubble burst, which obviously put the banks against the wall. Greece, Portugal, Spain, and Ireland, although Ireland's case is a bit different, required some form of financial assistance. At that time, the distrust and problems were so huge that, as you might have heard, there was speculation about the possible rupture of the euro, among other things because many European states had to pay such high premiums that their situation was made completely unstable. They simply could not finance themselves. In the end, the member countries of the Eurozone decided to do everything they could to avoid that scenario, and it was then that the European Central Bank President, Mario Draghi, pronounced these famous words on July the 26th, 2012. Within our mandate, the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the Euro. And believe me, it will be enough. Mario Draghi. 
This meant that the European Central Bank would adopt extraordinary measures to stabilize the euro. It started to give longer-term loans to banks to buy a range of assets from banks, including government bonds and corporate bonds, so that businesses and people were able to borrow more and spend less to repay their debts. This has led to more economic growth and inflation. What has been the hardest time for the euro? I think the hardest time for the euro was when the crisis, which was initially an, an economic crisis, a financial crisis, a banking crisis, turned into a crisis of trust, a crisis of confidence. When people lost confidence that the euro as a project is a good thing, the euro will survive, uh, that countries will do the right thing to stay in the euro. When people started doubting that, that was, I think, the hardest moment, because to lose trust and confidence is very quick. To rebuild it is very hard. Was the euro really in danger? If you go out and ask people in the financial markets, there were certainly some people who thought the euro would disappear. Some might even be looking forward to it because of an opportunity to make money. Um, often forgetting what catastrophic responses, uh, consequences it would have had. Um, and maybe also if you ask people in the streets, feeding, being fed, some of the, of, of the, of the media commentary had, had, uh, had doubts about it. If you read the headline, the Euro's got 10 days to live, that you had in some, some papers, then it is natural that people start to wonder whether this is really solid. But what's most important in this is that ex post, people have seen that yes, if push comes to shove, the Europeans get their act together and they will do what is necessary, or in the words of our president, whatever it takes, to make sure the Euro will survive. Is the Eurozone ready to face a new crisis? I think there, there is an understanding that we haven't done all the jobs that we need to do, that we've done good progress, we made good progress, but there's more to do. The completion of banking union is one thing. The, uh, uh, the uh, working on what we call a capital markets union is a, is a very important point. And there are, there are other elements, about economic union and all the way to a deeper political union and say, how do we make sure that the benefits of the single currency, which are there, are shared equally and that everyone, even those in, in countries that have suffered from the crisis, feel, yes, this is a good project that also helps me personally. But folks, at this point, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Is the Eurozone really prepared to face a new crisis? What could happen in the future if one of the Euro member countries has some problems? Well, folks, over the last few years, a lot of different mechanisms have emerged and have been implemented in order to strengthen the Euro's resistance. And I can tell you right now that a lot of these things are a bit of a mouthful. For example, we have the MIP, Macroeconomic Imbalance Procedure, and the ESRB, the European Systemic Risk Board. 
also the ESM, the European Stability Mechanism, which has been established, among other things, to provide financial assistance to the member countries if they need it. It can mobilize up to 500 billion euros and has already been used to assist Greece and Spain with their famous bank bailouts. I think we've made good progress in completing banking union that has three pillars, a single way of supervising banks, a single mechanism to make sure if banks are in trouble and they're failing that we can resolve them. And what we're missing is the third pillar is a common deposit insurance guarantee so that wherever you put your money into the bank, your deposit is safe throughout, regardless which country and which bank. That is to make sure kind of a euro is a euro wherever it is in which bank account it is across the entire eurozone. And that's not all. Existing institutions, such as the Stability and Growth Pact, have also been reinforced. It requires a 3% limit on public deficit and 60% on public debt from member countries. And also, by virtue of the Fiscal Stability Treaty, almost all European Union countries have included the requirement of having balanced budgets throughout the cycle in their national legislation. Let's hope they respect their legislation. The European Central Bank has also increased its capabilities to deal with emergencies. In short, as you see, a lot of changes have taken place with the aim of reducing the risk of crisis and, if necessary, limiting its impact. The question is, are these measures enough, or should we continue to move forward, for example, with a fiscal union? And right there, folks, is one of the great debates that exists right now in Europe. But hold on a second, because crises aren't the only challenges facing the European Central Bank and the Euro. The arrival of cryptocurrency and blockchain have also raised questions. These are, will new financial technologies be able to change the way that money works? Do they pose a threat to traditional currencies? Uh, blockchain is, a, is a, what we see as, as an infrastructure. So you can see it as a road. And, and, and the Bitcoin or other crypto assets, these are for us the cars on the on the infrastructure in a very simplified way. We, we think that the technology is promising and uh, it's not yet maybe ready for prime time for us, but uh, it's not a threat, it's more an opportunity. So that's it on the infrastructure side. But then you have the, the assets, the Bitcoin and so on. I think a lot has been said by, by many central bankers around the world. Uh, of course, uh, crypto assets, they come with high volatility and they are not a currency, they are not money. And uh, our president also recently said a euro today is a euro tomorrow and with Bitcoin maybe it's different because there's no identifiable issuer, there's no one responsible behind the currency making sure that it's, that it's stable. That was Dirk Bullman, advisor to the Directorate General of Market Infrastructure and Payments for the European Central Bank. And well, this brings us to another very important question, and that's, well, what about cybersecurity? Especially in a world where the storage of financial records is digital and the only way to access the information or perform a transaction requires a digital device. It's a new form of warfare in many ways. So you also have threat actors, you know, nation states, hacktivist groups, you know, script kiddies, all of them that have become more professional and more persistent and better resourced to be able to target the financial system. Why does this matter to the European Central Bank? Well, we ultimately have a mandate which is around financial stability, ensuring confidence in the euro itself. So if 
there is a disruption to the financial system. If the integrity of data is compromised in the financial system, then it has a possible contagion effect right across the financial system. That was Imran Islam, market infrastructure expert for the Directorate General of Market Infrastructure and Payments of the European Central Bank. Folks, Europe is facing a lot of challenges, some of which we've already talked about on this channel. Challenges such as aging populations, growing international competition, imbalances in the public accounts of many of the member countries, or even defining exactly what European model we all want to follow. The European Parliament elections will take place from May the 23rd to May the 26th. That depends on the country in which you live. In one way or another, this is the moment in which all European citizens will have the chance to speak out and decide what future we want for Europe and what kind of union we want. So, well, now you know. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. This was originally a video that aired on our YouTube channel. If you'd like to get stuff right up to date as it comes out, please do search Visual Politics. That's politic with a K, one word, in YouTube, and you will catch all of our videos. Also, if you like this, please do consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We really do appreciate it. And as always, I'll see you next time.